What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Keegan Lowe to discuss the Marlins system. The Marlins have been in a rebuilding mode now for a couple of years. We saw after the 2017 season, they traded Giancarlo Stanton, Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna. After last year, they traded JT Real Muto. As such, the Major League Baseball team has gotten worse. This farm system has gotten a little stronger as they kind of gear toward the future here. Keegan, you've done the Marlins system for a few years for us now, including pre-Stanton, Yellow, Chozuna, Real Muto trades. When you look at the system now, how would you just kind of assess it and where it is and its strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, so I actually picked up this system um, kind of midway through 2017. And the running joke when I was assigned the Marlins when I got here was like, they were clearly the worst farm system in baseball. I mean, and you would know better than I, but um, it kind of seemed like they were a clear 30th, you know, going into, I guess, around the all-star break or, or late 2017 before they started making all these trades. And now um, they might, in my two years here, they might be the most improved farm system in baseball. I think what we had them in the top 10, I know when we, um, updated our organizational talent rankings um, a few months back. Um, they continue to make some trades at the deadline to, to keep rebuilding this depth. And um, yeah, so definitely in my two years for all 30 teams, I think, if not the most improved farm system, definitely on the short list. You mentioned some of the moves they made midseason. I had an interesting conversation uh, early in the season with a couple of scouts who had Marlins coverage. And what they said was they liked all the pitchers. They liked Sixto Sanchez. They liked Zach Galen, who had a huge year. They liked all the arms. They really didn't care for a lot of the position players, Ison Diaz, Monty Harrison. They saw a lot of guys they thought were second division starters at best. They, they really were not high on a lot of the position players. A few months later, I was speaking with another high-level evaluator who kind of knows some of the guys in the Marlins front office, and he was saying the same thing, that this new regime did not like a lot of the position players they had. They thought they were really, really liked there. What we saw then was they draft J.J. Bleday with the fourth overall pick. At the trade deadline, they, they go out, they get Jesus Sanchez, they get Jazz Chisholm. It seemed like there was a concerted effort to upgrade the position players in the system during the course of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You touched on Blade and Sanchez, um, Chisholm, and then um, Lou and Diaz, obviously, they added. So those, when we uh, just released our Marlins top 10, um, as our listeners know, those were the four highest position players um, on my Marlins top 10, and they've all joined the system, what, since June? So, and then that's not even, um, Cameron Misner was a guy that they drafted 
um, right after Blade, and he would be right outside the top 10. So, yeah, I mean, they're definitely um, trying to build it as, as much as they can, you know, because I know a lot of those guys, Monty Harrison, Isan Diaz, et cetera, they all kind of had some flaws or, or such. So they're definitely um, putting some resources, I guess, t- towards getting the position players. Because like you said, I think the position – or the, the pitchers, excuse me, I think the, the pitchers have something there between Sixto Sanchez, Edward Cabrera. I think they like some of those guys. So adding some, some hitting talent is, uh, was definitely a priority, I think, in, this, in 2019. And I think it was important, too, when you look at the Marlins kind of mapping out what they have right now from a major league perspective, they went 57 and 105 this year, uh, similar record as expected. But if you look at the group they have, you could say, okay, Jorge Alfaro has a job for the long term. Brian Anderson has a job for the long term. You know, we saw Garrett Cooper have a bit of a breakout this year. Maybe you can pencil him into that. But really, they had five or six position player spots they didn't really have a long-term answer or they were kind of counting on maybe one or two guys. Uh, But it seems like building that position player depth, while obviously it's been an ugly run of things at the major league level for the Marlins trading some big leaders to get that depth. It does seem like it was a good solid long-term play, just mapping it out over the next few years. Yeah. I think actually the, um, the outfield will be most interesting to watch um, for the next few years, at least for me, because you have a guy like Lewis Brinson who, we can talk about his struggles, but, you know, I don't know how much they can rely on him moving forward. Monty Harrison is a guy who, while he was improved a little bit this year, he was hurt, didn't play much, and that strikeout rate is still really high, so you don't know what you're going to get from him. They put a lot of resources into a guy like Victor Victor Mesa, who this time last year we were thinking he was the Marlins' number one prospect. They gave him $5 million, something like that, and he didn't really have a great year. He doesn't – I don't know if he's going to have the power to really impact. And then they – trade for Sanchez, draft Blade with the fourth overall pick. So I think the outfield is kind of a perfect example of what you're talking about. They've thrown a lot of resources at that outfield. All guys that, I mean, all five of those guys I just mentioned either have already played in the big leagues or could be ready conceivably in the next 12 to 18 months, but you don't really know what you have with any of them or if you can count on one of them, two of them, or or three of them, you know, your starting outfit of the future. So I think that's really interesting just to kind of see long-term. And, we, and Brian Anderson obviously had played a lot of right field. I know he can play third as well, so they can kind of move them all over. But I just think outfield in particular is interesting to me because they've thrown a lot of resources at it, but you're still not quite sure what it's going to look like next year or in 2021 down the line, et cetera. Yeah, it will definitely will be very interesting to see. I think the Marlins, just because of the sheer numbers they have, there's a chance at least one of them will click, but you never know. And But just that they have the bodies where you can say that, that's very different than two, three years ago when you looked at the system and it was, man, maybe if everything goes right, there's one guy who could be okay. Exactly, yeah. I think when I started this, I was like, okay, well, Brian Anderson might be a regular. You know, you know, it was kind of that thing. And now at least even with a guy like Jazz Chisholm who has maybe some warts that um, still need some iron out, at least there's – some potential there where if everything clicks for a guy like Jazz, then, you know, maybe he is a, a first division regular. Maybe he is a gets to an all-star game or something. Maybe he turns into a Javier Baez type. I mean, obviously we're dreaming, but even two years ago, there weren't even really guys to dream on like that. And I, I think that's maybe where you see some of the biggest improvements in this system. So going deeper into the system, Sixto Sanchez, who was acquired in the JT Real Muto deal, uh, was the number one prospect coming into the year. He holds on to that spot. Uh, he had a really nice year at Double A. Twenty years old, went eight and four, two five three ERA. 
What were the kind of things you were hearing from evaluators about Sixto Sanchez and kind of the steps forward he took this year? Uh, throwing 114 innings was huge for him. That had been a concern in the past. Where is Sixto Sanchez right now in his development? And how clear was it that he was the number one prospect in this system based on your discussions? Yeah, so I think you touched on the most important thing, and that's that he threw 114 innings. He was healthy. He looked good. He looked strong. I know he didn't pitch much um, in 2018, so that was like – I mean, the, the talent has been there, right? We, we all know about the, the fastball and the stuff and, and even the control, but it, the durability, he's only six feet tall. You've heard a lot of those durability concerns. Could he stay a starter? Um, I think this year was a, a good step in the right direction for him just in terms of kind of easing some of those concerns. Um, and it's a touch on your question about how um, – how much of a lock, I guess, was he at number one? I would say it was, it was fairly clear-cut. Um, obviously, we put J.J. Bleday, too. But I couldn't really find anyone um, that wouldn't have Sanchez at the number one spot. So, for me, it was relatively easy. And then once you got down to two, three, four, I think you could argue a couple different ways. But for me, Sixto Sanchez is the clear number one in the model system. Obviously, we, we mentioned a really good year. One thing that has come up when I've just spoken with evaluators in general is Sixto has explosive stuff. It's a fastball that can get up to 100. He has a couple of really promising secondary pitches. He has great control. But for whatever reason, the some of those parts don't equal the bat-missing stuff you would hope for. He's never averaged more than a strikeout per inning, playing exclusively pretty much at the lower levels. Again, he got to double-A this year. Uh, K's per nine was eight and a half. The walks per nine was 1.7. So, I mean, it's a good ratio. There's, there's an eight and a half is nothing to sneeze at. But I think there's an expectation for a guy with as loud a stuff as he does. You'd think he'd miss more bats than he does. What did you kind of hear from evaluators on that front? I think, I think that's a fair criticism. And I think if there is going to be a criticism of Sanchez, you would expect, because just even when I was kind of typing out his report and putting grades on his pitches, and I was looking at his strikeout numbers. I said, you know, that, that's pretty interesting to me. Um, a lot of it was just they thought he wasn't trying to be too fine. You know, he was okay kind of using his stuff to get, you know, weak ground outs or weak fly balls or stuff like that. He, he maybe doesn't have that mentality of, you know, I have to make a perfect pitch or, or get you to chase, swing out of the zone and get you to strike out, which I think kind of speaks to his maybe long-term prospects as a starting pitcher. You know, he does – if. I guess there was a debate a year or two ago or, or maybe even still now that maybe he would be best suited in a bullpen role. And I don't really think he has that mentality, if that makes sense. So I think he just kind of the way he attacks hitters and the way he kind of looks at the game and looks at trying to get hitters out, it almost reminds me more of like a starting pitcher-esque, um, if that makes sense. And it's a positive thing because sometimes we see guys in the minors who have that big stuff and you look at their final line, it's 10 strikeouts, but they only pitch five innings. You look at six of those lines, there's a lot of six innings, seven innings, six and a third innings, especially as the year went on. And I think for 99% of teams, you want that length from a starting pitcher. And if that means there's a few less strikeouts, but a few more early count outs, you'll take that trade off. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, if you can get a guy out with your first or second or even third pitch, you know, we don't need to go into a eight pitch at bat just because you're trying to, you know, get that slider right on the outside corner and, and for a swing and a miss strike three to get your strikeout numbers up. You mentioned that he was a clear cut number one, and there's a little bit of a grouping here, you know, two, three, four, five. Uh, JJ Blade, the fourth overall pick of the draft out of Vanderbilt, 
uh, ended up getting the number two spot ahead of guys like Jesus Sanchez, Edward Cabrera, Jazz Chisholm, all of whom have been in the top 100 at some point. What for you made Blade the number two prospect in the system? And what were the types of things you were hearing about him from evaluators, especially coming off of his pro debut? Yeah, Blade and Sanchez especially, Jesus Sanchez, sorry. Um, they were they were really neck and neck for me, two, three. I think I talked to different people. You could probably have them either way at two and three, kind of flip-flop right there. The reason I went with Blade at two and the reason I felt more, com- more comfortable with him was just I had a lot of evaluators and scouts that they were just, if there was one person in this system that was going to hit his ceiling that just wasn't going to fail, that they would bet on Blade. I mean, you look at his college pedigree at Vanderbilt, um, what he did with the Wood Bat and the Cape Cod League. He's just, he's, he just always gets the most out of his tools, it seems like. I mean, you know he's going to hit. Um, the power really came along in his junior season at Vanderbilt when he led um, all Division One hitters with home and um, with 27 home runs. Um, obviously, what Vanderbilt did as a team and Blade was kind of right in the middle of that um, at every step of the way, winning the College World Series. And so, basically, when you're filling out these lists, as you know, it's it's a lot of who do I think is going to reach their potential? Because all these guys have, especially when we're talking at the top of these lists, all these guys have. You can you can imagine a world in which you know they reach their ceiling and they're all stars, yada yada. But J.J. Blade for me, was the one guy in this system that if I had to bet on him becoming a major league regular and really, you know, tapping into that ceiling that I think he has, I, I, would, I would bet it on Blade. Yeah, you look at the track record. You mentioned he led the nation in home runs this year, first team All-American. Not only led the nation in home runs, led the nation in home runs with more walks than strikeouts. Uh, led them to the College World Series. I mean, it seems like everything on paper is there. You hinted at his ability to hit his ceiling. What is that ceiling? For me, I think it's a, it's an all-star corner outfielder, honestly. Um, I mean, I know that's high praise, but he can. I think he's a guy that can hit, um, you know, close to 300 in the big leagues. I mean, he, kinda, he has that kind of hit tool. Um, the power, I don't think anyone doubted his hit tool even going into his junior year at Vanderbilt. I think all of it was, you know, what's he going to be able to hit the – the home runs necessary to profile either in left or right field. Cause I, I think he ultimately depending on the out, the outfitters with him. I think he could handle both left or right. Um, he has the arm strength for right, but I think a lot of people just question is the power there. Um, but I, I think he showed, I obviously it was, it was with the middle bat in, at Vanderbilt, um, but he showed he has that power. You know, he can hit to all fields. He can drive the ball left field, right field, wherever. Um, so if he continues to show that power at the, in, in the pros, I, I think, the ceiling for him is a guy that you can put two, three, four in your lineup at the big league level, put him in left, put him in right. And he's going to be one of your best hitters. He's not going to hurt you defensively. You know, he might not be the greatest defensive right fielder you've ever seen, but he's not going to hurt you defensively. And he's a guy, he's a true franchise cornerstone that you can kind of build around, build your lineup around if he hits that ceiling. One of the biggest risers in the Marlins system this year was Edward Cabrera. He's always had big, big, big stuff. Uh, there were some concerns about his ability to throw strikes, just his overall ability to consistently make pitches he needs to and not just kind of be a thrower but be a pitcher. This year we saw him really, really take some steps forward in every aspect of being a pitcher. What was the kind of feedback you were getting on him? We moved him into the top 100 this year. He was good at both high A and double A. What were evaluators seeing from him and the steps he took forward? 
Yeah, so he was a guy, kind of like we were talking earlier, he had all the parts, even a year, two years ago, three years ago. He just didn't ever seem to put it all together, and the, the performance was kind of lacking. Um, he was a guy, his delivery could speed up at times. I know that was an issue, and he kind of got – he could get out of whack and, with his delivery, and which led to some high walk rates. Um, he really improved that this year. His delivery, from what I heard, is a lot more sound this year, and I think you saw that. Um, he walked less than three batters per nine innings this year, which is a big step forward for him because the stuff is there, right? You know, he has the mid-90s fastball that can that can get up to 100 easy, kind of just like Sixto Sanchez. Um, he has the breaking ball changeup that he's working on that have really taken some steps forward. He's, in my eyes, I think there's a, he's the separated himself as the clear number two pitcher in this system. And I think his ceiling might be closer to Sixto Sanchez than anyone would have thought, you know, six months ago, 12 months ago, he has a guy that if you just look at the pieces, they're, they're comparable to what Sixto is doing. Um, and so, yeah, he's a guy I think that took a big step forward. And I think Marlins fans should be really excited about what they could potentially have with Sixto Sanchez and Edward Cabrera um, as two right-handers at the top of their system. Yeah, you mentioned the delivery fixes. We saw the walk rate come down from last year. Is there a sense that he can be a starter now? I think so. Um, obviously, they were going to give him every chance regardless. But I think this time last year, there still would have been some questions. You know, can he stick as a starter? I think he's put, just like Sixto did a lot, this year, just being out on the mound and getting those 114 innings, I think Cabrera reducing that walk rate was and obviously still having the strikeout numbers that he always has. I mean, he's still striking out more than a, a batter per inning. Um, I, I think that went a long way into saying, okay, this is a guy, maybe, and maybe it's not next year, but maybe in two or three years that we're relying on as a starting pitcher in Miami. We mentioned some of the acquisitions they made on the position player side. Jesus Sanchez, Jazz Chisholm, Monte Harrison, all supremely talented athletes, all have different levels of questions about, okay, how much are they going to hit? How much are the strikeouts going to affect them? Another person they brought in was Luis Diaz, and Diaz had a, a really, really breakthrough year. And it seems like he's a little bit different than some of these other guys who are these, you know, just supreme athletes that hope they'll hit enough, and there's varying degrees of confidence whether they will. What did the Marlins get in Luis Diaz? Yeah, so I think that's a good point you brought up about having kind of a different profile. He's a guy that he doesn't walk much, but he also doesn't strike out much. You know, for someone that hit 27 home runs this year and plays first base, he's not your prototypical, you know, slugging first baseman, three true outcomes kind of guy. Um, Left-handed hitter, much more bat-to-ball skills than I think, um, you know, a lot of people would, would – think just looking at a 6'4", 225-pound left-handed hitter. Um, he worked hard this offseason from all accounts to get his body into way better shape, um, leaner, stronger build. And I think that helped him tap into that power because this was kind of a break. Even though I said he's not the prototypical slugger, he tapped into what raw power. I mean, he still has plus raw power. And he tapped into it more often this year. And a lot of scouts thought that had to do with just getting his body in just better shape and being stronger. Um, but, yeah, I think he's a guy that defensively um, he has the chance to be a plus defensive first baseman from everything I heard. Um, good footwork about the bag. Obviously not a, not a speed guy, not going to have below average speed as, as a runner, but nice footwork about the bag, athletic after getting his body more into shape. And I think just a solid all-around player that the Marlins should be able to put at first base next year in a couple years and just say, okay, he's a guy that we know what we're going to get with him. You know, he's not going to strike out a lot. He's going to put the ball in play. He's got powered off fields. And if he shows the power, if he continues to show the power that he showed this year, that, that could be a really nice find, I think, for the Marlins. 
Absolutely. Two left-handed pitchers they took in the first round back-to-back years, Braxton Garrett and Trevor Rogers. Garrett has had some injury issues, missed time with Tommy John surgery. Rogers was also a good pitcher who they took very, very slowly. Didn't make his pro debut until May 2018 after being drafted in June 2017. Where are these two left-handers right now in their development? Yeah, so these are two guys, and I like how you kind of asked me about them together because I tend to ask a lot of people about them together, and it seems like everyone talks about them together. Um, just because, just profile, they're they're very similar. First round guys in back to back years, 2016, 2017, high school left handers. Um, like you mentioned, Braxton Garrett had the Tommy John surgery that really cost them two seasons, and Trevor Rogers just didn't start they drafted him in 2017 and he didn't pitch in a a real game for them until I think May of 2018 you know so they took it really slowly with him but this year was a big step forward for both of those guys Um, both threw over 100 innings I think Trevor Rogers was over 135 innings Um, strikeout numbers were there for Rogers and just two guys that coming into this year you really had no idea what you were getting I mean Rogers pitched a good amount last year um, in the second half of the season, but you could just tell something was kind of off. He was a little inconsistent. Didn't look like the same guy that, you know, everyone thought was a first round pick two year, or a year and a half before. Um, and this year was a lot better. It looked a little sharper, more consistent, um, added some velocity, which was big for Rogers working um, to add a cutter. He still needs to work on his off speed. He doesn't have a, a go-to off speed, I would say, um, but kind of more solid arsenal across the board. Whereas Braxton Garrett, everyone um, coming out of the draft, everyone knew about the curveball. Um, some people thought it was the best curveball in the 2016 draft. The Marlins, a lot of people I talked to with the Marlins still think it might be the best curveball in their system, best off-speed pitch in their system. Um, so he's more of your prototypical fastball curveball lefty, whereas Trevor Rogers is kind of maybe three or four pitches, average pitches, above average pitches across the board. Um, but both guys that I think took big step forwards this year and just saying, okay, now we know what we have with these guys because I think coming into the year, there was a lot of question marks surrounding both of these guys of just can they stay healthy? Can they, you know, go out and pitch five, six, seven innings every five days? Um, and they both uh, t- took big jumps forward this year. Yeah, they both spent time at high class A Jupiter in the Florida State League and pitched pretty well. Rogers made his way up to double A in Jacksonville. And uh, you're right. I remember watching Rogers pitch at Greensboro uh, in 2018. And my colleague Josh Norris saw Braxton Garrett pitch at Greensboro there as well. And both were guys where you can see it. You can see the talents there, but there were definitely some things to work on. It seems like they've taken steps forward. And that is one thing I want to point out about the Marlins, the new regime. It seems like they've done a really good job developing pitchers and helping them take steps forward. We saw Santi Alcantara take a step forward just with his general control and pitchability. Uh, Nick Niner, once he got healthy, he's taken some steps forward. Pablo Lopez took some steps forward under the new group. It seems like as a whole, the Marlins player development apparatus that's come in under Gary Denbo, the pitching development seems to be better and more efficient than maybe it was in the past. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a great point because we've talked about four pitchers so far today in this top 10, and all four of them, I've said, made big steps forward this year. Alcantara, I think, was a great example. I mean, he might have been their best pitcher at the major league level. And and then we talked about Zach Gallen earlier. I mean, he was a guy that kind of blew up in the last 12 months. Obviously, they traded him to the Diamondbacks, but even after he went over to Arizona, he was really good for Arizona. So obviously, the Marlins have tapped into something where these guys, they're getting the most out of these pitchers. I mean, no one thought Gallen would do what he did in 2019. No one I talked to this time last year thought he was going to be 
you know, a guy that made this much of an impact at the major league level. And the Marlins, I mean, obviously a lot of credit should go to him, but there's also the Marlins deserve a lot of credit because there's a theme here, you know, with these guys in the top half of their system, these pitchers in the top half of their system, none of them are really taking steps back at this point. And they're all, they all seem to be taking steps forward. So that'd be something to watch going into um, 2020. Absolutely. Yeah. Zach Gallon, I, I wrote him up in the Cardinals system as well. And everyone's like, he's a, he's a good pitcher. He might be a number five, number four, like there's something there. And he's just taking it to another level. Rogers and Garrett were their first round picks, or I should say Garrett and then Rogers, 2016, 2017. The first round pick in 2018 was Connor Scott. Now this was a guy who, when you saw Rogers and Garrett at Greensboro, you got it. There was something there to really, really like. Connor Scott, for the most part, drew pretty poor reviews in his debut season. He got up to Greensboro, and then first half of this year with Clinton, it was not going well either. But he had a really, really strong second half, got promoted to high class A. What were the types of things you were hearing about Connor Scott to keep him in the top 10 of the system? Yeah, so I I think the biggest thing is they've been – the Marlins have been very aggressive with him and admitted as much. I mean, you talked about – uh, high school pick and his draft year he's already in low class a with Greensboro um, this year basically one really uh, struggled in April May and June but then was a really good um, for Clinton in July and they immediately promoted him to Jupiter um, for the final month of the season so they haven't been afraid to push him and I think that speaks to kind of what the makeup and the character they think he has now he's a little unorthodox um, he's a plus runner but looks kind of funny running around the box you know it's not the most um it's not the cleanest running style you've ever seen um currently playing center field some people think he'll have to move to a corner but the marlins like him in center field you know he, he seems to make all the plays out in center um at least for now to stick him out there the hit tool i think is going to be the biggest question with him um he hasn't shown you know he hasn't put up great numbers so far but like i said he's also two or three years younger than the competition for for most of his career just because the marlins have been very aggressive with him um so i i think the biggest thing to watch is how i assume he'll start back at jupiter um in 2020 in high class a and just to see how that hit tool keeps progressing um he's going to need to fill out some more he's still kind of um, a, a lanky kid. I mean, he's, like I say kid, he, he just turned 20 um, in October after the season. Um, st- still could mature physically, and I think that will help him both in the power department and maybe even the hit tool just not being overmatched as much against some of these older pitchers he's faced, you know, in the last year and a half. You know, I remember a couple of years ago after number 10, it was a stretch to even find, man, who's my number 10 guy in the system? Now it seems like there's a lot of candidates, uh, obviously went with Connor Scott, but uh, seeing both Nick Neidert and Gerard Cardacion in the Arizona Fall League, there were definitely some things to like. Nick Neidert really, now that he's healthy, he had a, a knee surgery that was bothering him throughout the year. and You know, kind of in top form in the Fall League, pitched really, really well. Gerard Cardacion showed big power, a lot of loud contact. It seems like you had some good candidates here that could go into number 10. Who were some of the players that were also drawing consideration here? Yeah, so we talked about Cameron Meisner, or Cameron Misner earlier. He was a guy that kind of similar profile to Connor Scott, just obviously three years ahead of, in development just because he went to Missouri and, um, you know, kind of really filled out um, physically. So I think that's a kind of debate or two guys to watch in terms of Scott 
and Misner and just see kind of where their development takes you because they're, they're similar players. Just one is ahead of the other in terms of college and high school. Um, obviously, we talked about Victor Victor Mesa a little bit. He was a guy that was the number one system's number one prospect a year ago, and now he's not even in the top 10. Now, a lot of that has to do with his play, but I think a lot of that has to do also with the improvement elsewhere. But he's a guy that would fall kind of in that 11 to 20 category, I think. Um, you talked about Nidert. Um, Jose Devers was a guy, the top 10, um, kind of a slight shortstop. Has dealt with some injuries, and that's the biggest thing, keeping it out of the top 10, but the Marlins really like him. Um, he's hits for great average, makes all the plays at shortstop, just needs to put on some more weight and, and stay healthy. And I think he's a, a name you could see back in the top 10. And then Encarnacion, I, um, I like that you brought him up because he's probably improved his stock more than anyone in this system over the past 12 months. I mean, he was a guy that wasn't even really on the radar this time last year. And now he's a guy that you saw in the fall league and were impressed with them. Some people thought he's at least, if not the top 10 of this system, at least, you know, safely in that 11 to 20 range, which is a big jump for, for Encarnacion. Yeah, and you mentioned Jose Devers. I saw him in the fall league as well, and I just liked his ability to really just kind of pull his hands in, put the barrel on the ball wherever it was pitched. I do want to hit on Victor Victor Mesa because you mentioned he was a guy that was hugely touted when he signed, got big money, was the number one prospect in the system until they acquired Sixto Sanchez. Throughout the year, uh, when we were making calls, it was a struggle to find anyone who really saw anything. And we see sometimes, you know, Cuban players, it's a huge, huge transition coming over to the United States, lifestyle as well as baseball. And it's not uncommon to see Cuban players struggle their first year. But I compare it to Luis Robert a year ago, and, and I saw Luis Robert at Winston-Salem. He was struggling. The swing was clearly not quite right. He'd had some injuries, but you saw the tools. You saw the physicality. You saw the speed. You saw some of the offensive abilities there. I think what concerned a lot of evaluators when I was speaking with them this year is people just didn't even see the tools with Victor Victor Mesa. I got one evaluator saying, you're hoping, praying that he's a fifth outfielder. What were you hearing on Victor Victor Mesa? And I mean, is there any consideration for him even in the top 15 of this system? So I, I think you touched on the adjustment period um, that, that a lot of Cuban hitters or, or Cuban players in, in general have to make when they're coming over to the United States. I think something we have to keep in mind with Victor Victor is he didn't even play that much in Cuba over the last two years before coming to the United States. So I think while this was always going to be an adjustment, and, and maybe this is my fault for not you know setting people up in advance before this year, but I think the adjustment period was going to be even greater for Victor Victor, just because he just hadn't played a lot of baseball in the past two years. But, um, but with that being said, I, I think you're right in the terms of the power was just non-existent. I mean, there's just no power to speak of, which I don't think anyone adjustment period or not, I don't think anyone really had the idea for just how little power he was going to show um, in the Florida state league this year. But even without the power, I think the hit tool um, just – he just didn't make a lot of impact in general. He just didn't drive the ball, you know, even for doubles in the gap or, or anything. He just, just kind of rolled over the ball. He just kind of hit, hit, hit a little weak line drives the other way. You know, just, just not able to drive the ball in any sense. And, and that, I think, really affected his hit tool. I think the defense is still there. Um, you know, he can play – he can play a good center field for you. I, I think, and I think that will continue to get better as he makes that adjustment. I think a lot of that has to do with just being comfortable. Um, so yeah, maybe 
maybe his ceiling is that of a fourth or fifth outfielder. Maybe he's just a, a speed and defense guy that's never gonna, you know, never gonna hit for any power, never really gonna hit in general. But I, I think the the best thing to do at this point would just be to give him give him 2020. Just see does he go to double A in 2020 and just see if it's the same profile that scouts and evaluators saw this year, then I think that's fair. Fourth, fifth outfielder, you can just kind of write him as that and say, you know, the Marlins made a big mistake. But I wouldn't quite write him off just yet and just in terms of, you know, he had that adjustment period this year. Let's see, year two in the system doesn't improve at all. So, yeah, I would say he's still – for me, he's still probably going to rank – I haven't, you know, done it all through one through 30 yet, but he's still probably in that um, 11 to 20 range for me. Um, but you know, we, we could be way wrong and he could be outside the top 30 this time next year. So, so we'll have to see. Yeah, like you said, I think it's important to give him that second year, that adjustment period is so, so, so huge. So I think watching what Victor Victor Mason looks like in 2020 will be one of the interesting subplots of the Marlins farm system. But again, and just to kind of bring it all back here, if he, for whatever reason, it doesn't click the Marlins are in a better position to survive that where again, we talk about a few years ago, if they had invested all this money into one guy and he didn't click, there was nothing else waiting behind him to maybe make it seem okay and say, okay, our future isn't in trouble now. Now, even if Victor Victor Mason doesn't click, there's four, five, six other really good outfielders in the system that they can draw from and say, okay, he didn't work out. We have other guys. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, even just, if you were just to line up the outfielders, I don't know if Victor Victor Mesa is in the Marlins top five outfielders right now, you know, maybe he's fifth, but um, so they're kind of, yeah, they gave him a lot of money and yeah, he's a big name signing, but they sort of had a, a luxury right now where if Victor Victor doesn't hit and he's a fourth outfielder or a fifth outfielder major league ever, even if he never makes the majors. Well, that's semi okay because they have four or five guys, six guys ahead of him in their system that they're counting on too, you know, so as long as two or three of those guys ahead of him hit, then I think it, you know, it takes the, it takes the pressure off of the Marlins in terms of saying, okay, Victor, Victor has to hit because we gave him this money. And I think the interesting part about it is his younger brother, Victor Mason Jr. Who signed at the same time for a lot less money, a lot younger. He had a pretty good year this year, all things considered. I've, I've heard some positive remarks from scouts. So I don't know if that gives you hope for Victor, Victor in the future, or just says, Hey, look, here's another outfitter. You know, we signed these two guys, for five, six million. And, you know, maybe if one of them gets to be a fourth outfit or something, you know, maybe it's not the best use of resources, but they have so many other guys in that position specifically that all of these guys aren't going to hit. And if Victor Victor's your miss, but you have Blade and Jesus Sanchez who, who hit and get to the majors in the next, you know, 12, 18 months and, and really provide something to Miami, then I think it's, it all kind of works out, even if you got there maybe in a roundabout way. Big picture, the Marlins just wrapped up their 10th consecutive losing season. It's the longest stretch of losing seasons currently in Major League Baseball. And not only that, but this 57-105 and 105 record was the worst record of these 10 straight losing seasons. How far away are the Marlins from, forget contending, but just becoming even a 500 team again, a winning team again? What's the timeline here fans should be looking at? Yeah, I still think you're looking at two to three years. You know, I mean – it's it's not happening in 2020 you know they're not going to win 80 games next year um but i i mean if you're a marlins fan maybe hold out hope for 2021 is the year where you're you know like you said 
maybe not winning the pennant, but you're at least semi-competitive. You're, you're, you're flirting with 500, something like that, as these young guys. Because if we just kind of go down the list, by 2021, you would think Sixto Sanchez at least has a chance to break into the majors by then, if not establish a role. Blade, I think, even though he was just drafted, he has the track record and the profile of someone that could be a fast mover. I don't think it's out of this world that he's in the majors by 2021. Same with Sanchez. Cabrera's already been in double A. Chisholm, you know, I think all these guys, if you just look the top, I don't know, six, seven, eight on this list could all be in the majors within the next 12 to 18 months. Now that's not to say they're going to be any good and they're probably going to have a lot of growing pains early, but I think if you're looking to something, if you're looking for something to get excited about, you're going to see a lot of young players making their debuts. And if, if they can fall in the path of the Sandy Alcantara's and the Brian Anderson's who have made their debuts in the last year or two and really given the Marlins something, well, then you're just talking about a lot of talent that's coming up through the system. And it, it, it will at least give them something, you know, it, it gives you something exciting to look forward to in the next, in the next year or two. But in terms of timeline of when I would expect the Marlins to be competitive, I would say 2021 at the earliest and probably 2022 if, if you want to be a little safer um, in that regard. Absolutely. Well, like we said, there is talent in the system and uh, hopefully it will lead to some wins at the major league level sooner rather than later for the fine folks of Miami. Keegan, thank you so much. And we do have some sad news here at Baseball America. This is Keegan's last week with us. He's leading to uh, join the world of politics. He'll be working on a presidential campaign. So we're going to miss Keegan and all his insight, especially with the Marlins system. He's been the point man on that for a long time and did a great job with that. Uh, Keegan, thank you so much for everything you've done for us here at Baseball America, and uh, we're going to miss you. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. Hope the uh, hope the Marlins can continue to improve. I'll definitely be uh, watching with a close eye from afar um, just to see how a lot of these guys who I've written so much about these last two years, kind of how they can uh, continue to transition and, and into their big league roles. Well, everyone, once again, that was Keegan Lowe. This has been another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. We will keep churning these out. We just are wrapping up the NL East here. AL East podcasts are coming up, so keep it here at BA.com and all the BA podcast platforms. For Keegan Lowe, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.